Welcome to Go Ask Alley, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. As a stand-up comedian, of which I am not, I tried it but once. But you are hilarious, and I've been your fan forever. Oh, thank you. You know, I should say right now, I'm married, so I'm off the table. We could do weekends. Get your bullshit detector and get it honed. Are you mad about something? Go out and seek people who are mad about related things, and also listen to them if part of what they're mad about is you. You actually look for those little kernels of hope. They jump out at me. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the good stuff. I think it is the good stuff, and I think we need the good stuff always. Welcome to Go Ask Alley. I'm Allie Wentworth, and this season I'm digging into everything I can get my hands on, peeling back the layers and getting dirty. Okay, I'm terrified about social media. I'm terrified about all the dark sides of this new crazy ride we're all on. And this episode is all about navigating the treacherous world of social media and online hate and misinformation. I mean, we live in a very polarized country right now because there are two sides that are constantly slinging zingers at each other and playing fast and loose with facts, in quotes. So how do we protect ourselves? And more importantly, how do we protect our kids from this kind of trauma? And I've always been concerned about social media in terms of how it affects the mental health of kids. But that is just a tiny portion of what misinformation and hate can do to our culture. This is a minefield of issues. This is political hate, hate groups, bullying. It should be terrifying. And we got to figure out a way to get a handle on it. And there's no one better to kind of help us through this than Imran Ahmed. Imran Ahmed is the founding CEO of the Center for Countering Digital Hate based in Washington, D.C. He is a recognized authority on the social dynamics of social media and the dark side of those spaces such as identity-based hate, misinformation, conspiracy theories, and modern extremism. Imran regularly advises politicians in the U.S., U.K., E.U., and elsewhere on policy and legislation. He holds an M.A. in political and social sciences from the University of Cambridge in England. Hello, Imran. Hi, Ali. We're just going to dive in right into this topic. I've said it before that the internet is like the Wild West and we don't have any laws. And I worry every day about all of it. So first of all, tell me how you even got involved in it. You're at Cambridge. You're taking classes. There's ivy covered everywhere. Well, I mean, it happened uh, a long time after Cambridge. I mean, when I left Cambridge, I, I spent a few years working in commerce and understanding how business worked and realizing that, you know, I learned a lot of lessons there. Like basically companies are amoral organizations. They don't have an instinctive morality beyond making money, but that can lead to some problems, uh, distortions in the way that they operate that can cause harm. And I was actually working in investment banking in the sort of early 40s when some of the some of the real bad behavior was coming out i then switched to working in politics and i worked in the uk parliament for a number of years when in 2015 something happened that was really outside of any recent political experience in the uk which is one of our political parties became irredeemably infected with anti-Semitism. It was the left-wing party, the Labour Party, and I was serving it at the time. And it was 
in, insanely shameful to me that the party that I felt so much for was starting to spout, both in terms of members and some of the senior leaders, some really scary anti-Semitic rhetoric. And then six months later, we had a referendum in the United Kingdom on leaving the EU. And in that referendum, conspiracy theories, misinformation, hate were flowing at a phenomenal rate. And at the end of that referendum, my really close colleague, Joe Cox MP, who was a member of parliament in the UK, she was assassinated by a far-right terrorist who'd been radicalized online. In fact, when he killed her, he shouted, Britain first, death to traitors, which were sort of internet slogans. They were, they were 2016's version of stop the steal or lock her up. And, you know, six months later, what happened in the US, but the rise of a politician the election of a politician who had used these movements, these conspiracist movements, he'd been he'd been showing them some affection, some as though he was the one who would represent them in Washington. And he built a political movement out of fringe conspiracy movements, fringe ideologies, and bolted them onto uh, you know, a, a major political party. And I thought, well, crumb, something's happening here. And it's not about left or right. It's not about UK or US. This is a global thing. And when something changes in multiple places simultaneously, when politics becomes much more unstable and hate and misinformation start to flow, it means that there's a systemic, a, a global problem. And what, of course, had been changing, we realized very quickly, was the impact of social media on political discourse and the way that we share information, we form our values as a society, and in which we decide what attitudes and behaviors we accept. So it terrifies me that, for instance, there could be one or two people that can seed information that goes out there that, like a snowball effect, you know, suddenly becomes fact, whatever that is. And do you identify these individuals? I mean, how do you keep an eye on them or how do you call them out or how do you form any kind of criminal action towards them? Well, look, one of the things we realized very early on was exactly as you say, a small number of bad actors, bad people are able to create a disproportionate amount of noise and they can infect millions with misinformation and the precursor lies that underpin hate. And what we've become quite well known for as an organization is in going into particular sectors of disinformation. For example, I think most famously, we did a very notable study on anti-vax misinformation and found that 12 people produce 65% of the disinformation shares on social media. And you call them the disinformation dozen, correct? Is this what we're talking about? That's that's right. Yeah, that's right. And um, I mean, you know, that was a statistic that was cited by Joe Biden when he criticized Facebook for not taking action against these people. It's really helped health communicators to understand that actually they're not up, up against a social thing. It's not that suddenly people spontaneously generate anti-vax beliefs. It's that it is seeded by a small number of bad actors. And when you know who it is that's doing it, well, two things happen. First of all, it helps us to plan out, well, who is it that we're up against and what are their actual agendas? What, How are they economically?
economically motivated. It helps us to bust apart some of the disgusting ways in which they make money from this. But the second thing is, we told the companies, we told the platforms, look, you've got rules against misinformation that's designed to hurt people. You can now take action because we've given you a list. So like Joe McCullough, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., which is really depressing because he's a Kennedy, but he's the bad Kennedy. Um, you know, and then there's people that you won't have heard of, like Del Bigtree and like Ty and Charlene Bollinger. Ty and Charlene Bollinger are two like two basically snake oil salesmen who have been doing videos like the truth about cancer, the truth about vaccines for years and years. But they realized that because they're kind of good old boys, that they can get all the QAnon people. So they started marketing their stuff. They started hybridizing their ideology with QAnon. And they created this thing called the Great Reset, which is now really big. So QAnon's basically gone away and it's been replaced by the Great Reset. That was driven by Joe McCullough, Robert F. Kennedy and the Bollingers. So yeah, we know who they all are. Um, it is to my great regret that, in fact, of the 98 social media accounts held by those 12 people, 42 are still up, which is just depressing. You know, it's why bother going half the way and not going the whole hog when it comes to dealing with people responsible for making people not anti-vax, but vaccine hesitant. So to overwhelm people with misinformation so that they can't make a decision on whether or not to vaccinate. And if you wait, the problem with COVID is, if you wait to get vaccinated and you catch it, there are people right now in intensive care units, as we're talking, and by the end of this podcast, one or two of them may have died, telling their doctors, but I thought the vaccine would hurt me. And COVID's a, and I'm, you know, you've had COVID and I've had COVID. It is a brutal infection. Yes. I, I would much rather have the vaccine and the slightly sore arm than yeah. go through that again. Well, so I want you to walk me through, for example, with the disinformation doesn't. I want you to walk me through how they're being paid, how they get the money for the disinformation that they put out there. How do they put it out there? And then how does it bleed? So, I mean, they're making money in lots of ways. One of the easiest ways, for example, is to, is that if you can persuade people, you know what? You can't be sure about the vaccine. Um, here's some misinformation about the vaccine. My cousin's, you know, testicles got rather large and his wife, his girlfriend left him. Um, so you need to wait before you take it. But while you wait, why don't you take my supplement? Because my supplement is proven to be effective okay. in helping you protect you against COVID. That is one of the main monetization methods by these economically motivated bad actors. And you know, what's, what's so remarkable is that these pills, they keep advertising them for everything that comes along. So, you know, you'll find them spreading misinformation saying cancer treatments don't work. Actually, what works is my pill. You know, H1N1, if you want to protect yourself from that, you should take my pill. But also, once they can persuade someone not to trust doctors, not to trust, you know, um, the, the public health professionals and to trust them instead, well, then they've got a sucker on the hook, haven't they? Mm. And a snake oil salesman knows they can sell them books, they can sell them access to special email lists, they can sell them uh, nebulized hydrogen. So one of the, the world's leading anti-vaxxer who was splashed on the front of the New York Times based on our research, Joe McCola, he recommends nebulized hydrogen peroxide, which is inhaling bleach. Yeah. Yeah. 
But what I don't understand is how he can get away with it. If this guy is telling people to do something that could kill them, like inhale bleach, why can't he be held liable for endangering the public? You can't just yell fire in a crowded theater. You, you, you theoretically, there are other laws that would be used in those instances. So s- telling someone a lie about health, for example, that might cause them to lose their lives, there can be liability, but we've been really bad in the US at prosecuting them. And it tends to be done at a civil level by the FDA fines. So for example, Joe McCullough was told halfway through the pandemic to stop claiming that vaccines were bad. And that's why you should take vitamin D, quercetin and something else, which he sells on his Amazon branded web store. But it's a year into it. And, you know, by then he's already made $2 million. We tend to treat sales as we we almost give it more leeway than we would someone shouting fire. When it comes to the companies, the platforms that literally then megaphone fire through the theatres, they have this special liability shield, which is really, really weird. And if it was any other type of business, they would be sued for their breach of their duty of care. Yeah. All right. So then you and your company, let's say you go to a Facebook and say, hey, listen, you know, people are actually not only dying from COVID, they're actually dying from these made up concoctions that people are trying to sell. And as you say, they go through deny, deflect, delay. Yeah. You know, I've been in this game now for when my friend was killed, my friend Joe Cox MP, that's when I started putting my mind to this. And for the first three years, we tried to talk to the platforms. We said, look, we can identify for you the spaces in which bad things are happening. Will you do something about it? And for the first three years, we got involved in policy teams and discussions. And they told us we really want to deal with this, too. And it was only after that time that I realized that we were being gaslit. Yeah, We were being engaged in a fake policy process designed to deny responsibility, deflect it to someone else, and then delay taking action. And that's the, that's the playbook of deceit that we see from the, the big tech companies. So we, we are very explicit now. And of course, we sent our report to senior executives at Facebook. I think I sent it to Sheryl Sandberg, Mark Zuckerberg, and Monica Bicker, myself. And you know, Joe Biden mentioned it a couple of months later. It, 12 attorneys general wrote a letter to Facebook based on our report. When they went before the House Energy and Commerce Committee, those politicians asked them about it, Republicans and Democrats. Because at the time, it was, of course, bipartisan agreement that the vaccine was a good thing because it was a vaccine developed on President Trump's watch. And so it was at the time uncontroversial. Facebook decided to not take action. In fact, they later released a a, a statement saying that CCDH, the Center for Countering Digital Hates Report, which is a 501c3, we are a nonprofit, that I run, that our our report was a faulty narrative. Now, here's the thing, Ali. A few weeks later, Frances Haugen released her documents. And what she revealed was, in fact, on the very same day our report had come out, an internal report had come out on Facebook, confirming our findings. So what they had done for six months was they hadn't just not taken the action required. They'd also known that we were right. And they'd gone out and told people that we were liars. Unbelievable, really. I mean, they deflect, they deny, they delay all the time with everything. And it's time for a short break. Great, let's get back to it. 
Let's talk about these crazy conspiracy theories where they put out on the internet that, uh, you know, people should be killed or Hillary drinks the blood of babies. I've actually spoken to people who truly believe that. They've read that on the internet. They believe Hillary Clinton drinks the blood of babies. How do you counter that in any way? Because if if I went on television and said that's not true, they'd say, oh, no, you liberal, you know, there, there's no way of countering this information once it's out there. It's like if I called you a pedophile for the hell of it, if I put it out on social media, that would live on forever. And there's no way of erasing it. And now that's what politics is. Politics is just throwing false narratives back and forth so that you don't know anything that's real or true. Well, I mean, look, something terrible is happening right now. And I mean, I, I gave a lecture to some students yesterday, high school students, about how to be safe online. And I explained to them the creation of social media was a brilliant thing. It was a real positive, but it's had these real negative side effects of destabilizing our ability to to form consensus in polarizing us in actually now fundamentally undermining our ability to have democratic liberal tolerant societies in which we can commonly address these huge problems that our world has like climate change and lots of other things lots of things are affected by disinformation and i said to them that the reason for it is because basically this is this is San Francisco libertarian capitalism gone crazy. It's like driven to the nth degree, where they don't care at all about the impact of their businesses. They feel no duty of care. And in fact, under US law, so something called Section 230 of an act passed in 1996, which couldn't have predicted how this would be misused. But under US law, a platform cannot be held liable for any content created by a third party on their site. And that specific law, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act 1996, essentially creates a system of impunity in which platforms feel no obligation to take any action. In fact, for them to sort out their platforms, it means reducing the engagement on their platforms and they have to pay to clean it up. So it's actually a lose-lose for them. And there are a number of malignancies that that's allowed to emerge in our society. And it's, it's a bit like the climate. You know, climate comes out of having cars and factories and broad access to, to consumer goods, which are good things. But then it, it reduces carbon to the atmosphere, which, which creates a problem. And so you seek to address that, that problem. Well, we're sort of polluting our, not just our physical ecosystems, but our information ecosystems as well. But the trouble is that with information ecosystems, if you collapse your democracy, really, really terrible things happen. People die. You know, societies and democracies are fragile. They're precious. And we have to work every day and commit ourselves every day to the values that underpin it. You start to undermine those at a systemic level and you, you can create a real problem. But you know, this hasn't happened over a period of 100 years like the Industrial Revolution. This has actually been relatively quick. and our ability to address it as well should be can be faster it's not going to be as obscenely expensive as solving climate change will be we're much more able to deal with this information crisis that we face 
And at the center, we do three things to, to work on this. The first thing is we help people understand what's changing and how to more healthily navigate digital spaces so that the users know what's going on. Your data is being used by these platforms. Here's how it's being used, why it's being used. Here's why you see what you see, and here's how you can interpret that and not fall down the rabbit hole of conspiracies. This is one. The second thing is we need to deal with the platforms themselves. And, you know, I'm quite a cheeky person by nature. I am a bit of a troublemaker. And so I'm, I'm very good at getting lots of attention to the issue of what of the harms that they create. You know, we've, we've made a lot of noise and that, that forces the platforms to kind of go, oh, no, we can't just hide it you know, anymore. We've got to do something about it. And the third thing is that we're working with legislators all around the world because what's very interesting is just a year ago is the first time when I stopped being asked the question, but isn't this just online? Because January the 6th mm. and the pandemic have made it clear to anyone mm. that bothers to look that social media has created problems for our society that are offline, that are real, and the, and the cost is paid in lives lost. And this year, what's so wonderful is to start off, I mean, I'm having a lot of conversations with legislators and with other folks around the world at the moment on, okay, we now know there's a problem. What should we be doing? And uh, I, I was in London last week speaking to legislators uh, about the new legislation being brought forward at our urging in the UK and online safety bill. In the European Union, there's a new act called the Digital Services Act that's coming along. There are countries all around the world that are seeking to legislate. And just before Christmas, I actually gave evidence for the first time to Congress. I gave evidence to the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which is a legislation committee about. They had 40 different bits of legislation that they were experimenting, the Republicans and the Democrats. And, and really, what's amazing is that for different reasons, these platforms have managed to unite the GOP and the Democrats on one issue, which is that something needs to be done about social media. Well, thank God for you, because, you know, th the past few years, the cultural screaming has been, you know, Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, and this is terrible. I'm going to delete my Facebook account. And my feeling is like, why, why aren't we taking to the streets a little bit? Why is this? Why do we just all sort of sit around and go like, oh, Facebook is awful. Hashtag, you know, well, that, I mean, there has to be legislation. Yeah. I mean, that's the irony is that, you know, to go and protest Facebook, people go on Twitter. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The, the One of the dirty secrets of tech regulation is that most of the organizations that are lobbying for changes to tech regulation are funded by big tech. So most of them, I find, ironically, in meetings running around saying, you don't want to go too far. And I'm going, aren't you meant to be the people saying we need a better social media? And they're saying, yes, let's keep it as it is, because that's better than, than whatever the regulated one will be. And so Google and Facebook spent more money than Exxon and Philip Morris put together in 2020 on lobbying, $120 million in Washington, D.C. alone. In the U.K., they're lobbying. In Europe, they're lobbying. In Australia, New Zealand, Germany, all around the world, because they're trying to stop regulation coming forward. And I mean, the, the honest truth is that we still have a fight on our hands. A huge fight. I mean, in every huge fight with misinformation, I even think about in our country, the fight with, with oxycoding, you know, the misinformation of that and how... Jesus, how can normal citizens go up against 
huge pharmaceutical companies. It feels like the same thing when it comes to tech. They have too much money. They're too powerful. They do, but we're right. And and I think that a lot of people increasingly agree with us. I mean, one of the things that happened over the pandemic is a lot of my friends, for example, who are parents of young children who, who would never talk about mental health normally, some of my sort of blokey bloke friends, they've turned around and they suddenly are talking about post-traumatic stress disorder after the pandemic. And I think that we are acutely aware of the mental health of our children in this particular moment right now. And they've had the chance to see how their kids use social media because they've been at home. And they're just horrified. They know now that their kid will go on Instagram and they'll come out and they'll they'll start talking about sort of how they feel about their body and they'll be thinking, well, why does my beautiful child feel that way? And they know why. And so I think that one of the things that's changed over the last year is parents are really engaged in this battle. And, you know, there's a few things that parents can do, which is to be really cognizant of their children's social media use. But my contention is politically that when parents start to mobilize in the numbers that they are right now and when they're as aware of the problem as they are right now, politicians tend to follow because that is something that transcends left, right, urban, rural. We all have kids. Yeah. And it's going to be, I, I think this is going to be a rough year for the social media companies that are going to see the first legislation coming forwards. And in the next couple of years, I expect to see even the US legislate in this space, either to break up the companies, to create more moral competition, or to regulate, to allow them to, to, to be sued where they are failing in their duty of care to their users. But we will see changes. And I, I'm deeply optimistic. I think social media is, I mean, as a core concept, the idea of being able to send a message to another person anywhere in the world for free is incredible. And then networking 2.5 billion people, it, it theoretically liberates humanity to operate beyond border, beyond time and space, to create this sort of this meta mind that binds us all and makes us an even more incredibly creative and an integrated species. To, to get there, though, we have to deal with the malignancies because right now, ironically, these companies are messing up. They're screwing up their product by being lazy in just making as much money as they can right now. If they invested into it by having proper moderation, enforcement of their rules, of building the safety protocols in place. Wow. I mean, this thing could, could genuinely liberate humanity. What did you tell your high school, the high school students that you spoke to the other day? What are you saying to that generation of people? Because these are the people that grew up with a cell phone in their hand. And so how are you telling them to, to be the people that go into battle and figure this all out and, and help turn this into a good thing for humanity and not a bad thing? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. The first thing I did was apologize to them for our failure to once again consider their interests and the world that we were bequeathing to them in our zeal to make money from this technology right now, they're going to deal with much more mature versions of the problems that we've created unless we start to deal with them now. And then I committed to them that we're going to do our best those of us who, who can see the problem and can see that this is not a technological problem, this is a moral question of what are you willing to make money from? How, how is it that you're willing to accrue your wealth? Are you willing to accrue it through content that kills people? Are you willing 
to accrue it through being lazy and not fulfilling your duty of care to administer your product in a safe way. And then I took them through the way that trolling shapes the discourse in politics. Trolling is purposeful communication. It's designed to make journalists, politicians, scientists, anyone in society feel fearful of saying certain things. That's why they troll you. But targeted abuse is used to cleanse those spaces of certain types of people. That, I mean, you know, if I had to open my door and every time I opened it, someone shouted, you know, you dirty brown XYZ, I just wouldn't bother leaving my home. I'd, I'd stay at home. So if every time I go on social media, I know I'm going to get a wave of abuse, why would I use that, that space? It's designed to make people not want to enter those spaces. And that is so regressive because, you know, what have we spent the last 200 years doing? Bringing women, gay people, brown and black and Asian and, and, and Hispanic people into public life. And now social media, a primary way by which we establish our brands and which we communicate, we establish relationships, is being cleansed of those people. It's, it's the counter-enlightenment. You know, it's the reversing of science and tolerance. The truth is, it's not free speech. This is a weighted platform towards the most controversial. You want to know why we're more polarized, we're more angry? We're not. The truth is that we're being slowly tilted that way by platforms on which most of our political discussion and opinion forming happens. And those are weighted towards the angry, the, the hyperbolic, the, the kind of the dumbest take possible. You know, the, the one that's least thought through, that's least considered, that's the worst advice that you could possibly want to take is the one that they will promote to the highest because they know that it will get people angry and shouting at each other. And, and while you're shouting at each other and you're on the platform, they can serve you ads. That's all they care about. And so it's really important that we think about that aspect. Um and of course, the way that the drip, drip of misinformation recolors the lens through which they see the world, that they have to be very cautious in using their sites. I mean, I told them advice on how they can use those sites. And I reminded them that these sites are entertainment. You don't know who's posting there. So taking that stuff as gospel is as dangerous as, as drinking water from a stream. You don't know if there's been, there's an animal carcass upstream or if there's, you know, someone's been dumping toxins into it deliberately, which is what social media is like. But I also encourage them that this, I think, is going to be an area that we're going to have to work on for decades to come. Even if we have regulation today, even if we have social action today, even if we educate ourselves, this is not going back in the bottle. No. And we're going to have to evolve to learn how to deal with these sorts of environments and these spaces because they're vital to our future as a species. But at the same time, they're pretty bad right now. Well, particularly because... A lot of the seedy dark side of our culture, you know, a lot of these platforms were watering and feeding them. Yeah. When you think about sex trafficking, drugs, again, terrorism, hate groups, all that stuff. You brought up January 6th. I mean, this stuff all can happen because of social media. And I remember years ago, I did a panel where we I talked about its effect on children and I did it in Silicon Valley and all the tech people that were there came up to me afterwards and whispered to me, yeah, we know how bad it is on our kids. That's why we don't let our kids do it. And I thought, well, that's interesting. You, know, you won't even let your own kids do it. That is absolutely true. I mean, I personally don't use social. I don't have a Facebook profile. My Twitter and my Instagram are managed for me by staff. And I don't look at any of the abuse I receive because it's designed to make me stop doing my job. And I refuse to stop doing my job. Um, you know, I talked about 
companies being amoral, like lacking morality. They're not human beings. But I have over time changed my opinion on that. I think that when you are aware of a problem and when you know that you're creating harm and you've had the time and you have the enormous wealth to change that and you refuse to do so and instead keep profiting from those harms, that you become immoral companies. And I mean, I, I genuinely believe that over the next year or two, we'll also see another change happen in society. I think we used to look at companies like Google and Facebook and think they're, they're cool places, they're, they're good places to work. But these are like working for Philip Morris or Exxon or, you know, I, I want a situation where when a kid comes home to tell their parents, I got a job at Facebook, their parents will say, oh, my Lord, what will the neighbors think? Yeah. What have we done wrong? Yeah. We'll be right back. And we're back. So does it make me a hypocrite if I agree with everything you're saying, and yet I'm going to post this podcast on my Instagram? I mean, can you be in for all the right reasons? No, of course not. And, and that, of course, is one of the problems. And that's why we need to have antitrust. You know, why I'm really pleased that Joe Biden has appointed Lena Khan, Tim Wu and Jonathan Cantor, the three horsemen of the apocalypse when it comes to antitrust, because th their job is to make sure that there is competition. If there's no competition, then there's no competition over both, you know, economically, but also morality. And people compete on the morality of their platforms, the quality of the enforcement. If a platform came along tomorrow and said that it's genuinely safe for kids and we knew it was safe for kids, I think you'd see a lot of people migrate there very, very quickly. But at the moment, you've got no choice. It's Facebook, uh, Twitter, and TikTok or bust. Yeah. And that's a terrible thing. And, you know, personally, I always say I won't be bullied off those platforms. And I certainly won't be scared off those platforms by the way that they behave because I, I actually find it quite delicious to use Facebook to undermine Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> And and what do you say to cheeky moms like me when I say, what can I do? You know, in the old days, it was, what can I do? And everyone said, well, call your congressman. What can we do where we feel involved in changing the way social media has been up to now? There is one central bit of logic and advice that the sort of the, the mathematical analysis by CCDH on how to deal with stuff that you see online. And I, I wish I could tell everyone in America this and everyone in the world this, because I think that if we all lived by it, it would change the mathematics of what we see online very quickly. When you see trolling, when you see hate, when you see misinformation, don't engage with it. These platforms are designed to make you look at stuff that will piss you off. That's controversial. That's kind of gets you emotional and triggers you to want to engage. And when you engage with it, you literally tell the algorithms, this is high engagement content, and so therefore show it to more people. And so our recommendation is to ignore it, block the person sending it, and take a time out if it's hate and if it's something that might have affected you, and then report it to the platform so you know that you've done your bit as well. The second thing is, there's going to be a lot of talk about legislation. And so actually, now is the time. Write your you know, email or tweet at your, <laughs> uh, send a Facebook message to your DM via Instagram, your, your congressman and senator, and tell them, I expect you to protect my children by putting in place proper protections on social media. And I don't understand why they get away with something that no other industry does. Why have they been protected 
through Section 230 from any liability for the harms they produce. There is actually a mathematical solution to the hate that we see on these platforms, and that's something that users can do. But look, there are lots of good organizations as well doing work in this space. I work with the ADL on anti-Semitism. I work with Color of Change on anti-Black racism. I work with a number of organizations, and organizations like mine, the Center for Countering Digital Hate, and all of them need the resources to fight back against the enormous wealth of these companies, just as you know, my colleagues in the climate change sector, who we work with very closely on climate disinformation, have had to fight back against Exxon, against these enormous great big companies. We are too, and so every donation matters. And you know, you can donate at www.counterhate.com. And I assume that these big tech companies have fought back and tried to take your company down. You know, they've offered our staff two times the salary to go and work there. They've put out PR saying that we lied. And what's been what I'm really confident in is that we are absolutely on the mark, that we are a very cautious research organization. And and everything I say is is extreme. And you know, there's a lot of like extraordinary claims that I make. I can provide evidence for every single one because believe me, they've tried to. You know, we've we've had a number of lawsuits against us. Not one of them has even gotten past the first letter, because our lawyers, in every instance, have been able to say the first defence against defamation is truth, and here's the evidence. So yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be a tough fight, but you know, most people are even even those people at Facebook. These are fundamentally good human beings, like all of us are, but they're doing the wrong thing. And I think you get enough of us working and pushing with all our might, and we will slowly start to right this wrong that's been done to our society. And our societies have proven incredibly resilient. That's the great power of democracy, and especially of American democracy, which is so decentralized. I'm really excited about the next few years. I think we're going to win this battle. And then, you know, then there's other things to be done. It's all about money, isn't it? Of course. Wow. All right. So a lot of what I talk about in my podcast is protecting children. And I know there's something called the Kids Act that was introduced in Congress recently. Can you tell us about the Kids Act and what it would do? Well, I mean, the Kids Act is um, an act introduced by Senators Markey and Blumenthal that would stop the addictive aspects of the design being targeted at children specifically. And, you know, I, I wish it could be stopped from being targeted at anyone. I think it's really, really important that with kids where they've got these incredibly malleable minds and in which they don't know in, in the same way that adults perhaps might, the way in which they're being manipulated psychologically by these platforms, by the core programming, the sort of the tweaks to the service based on behavioral psychology that make it so addictive. I mean, what they do is they amp up emotion to 11. And that is really, really unhealthy to a child's mind. A mind that isn't formed yet, yeah. whose frontal lobe is still growing. You know, the reordering of what we see by social media algorithms to prioritize the hateful, to prioritize the angry, to prioritize misinformation has started to normalize these things within our society more generally. Like, we've now become used to it. There's almost an extent to which we're like, yeah, we know. We know that this is caused by social media, but that's how I feel now. Um, it, you know, with, with adults, you're rewiring the brains. But with kids, you are fundamentally wiring their brains in that way. They will never have known any other way of being. I, I, can't, I can't describe it any, any other way than it is just child abuse. Yes. You're wiring the brains the same way that it would be if they lived in a household where there is just violence and anger and shouting and screaming and... 
that's just terrible. We're traumatizing a generation digitally. Yes. And I look at my own children, you know, and they're the guinea pigs for all this. We didn't grow up with cell phones in our hands, but they did. And it's hard to parent when you didn't go through it yourself. And speaking of children, I wanted to ask you about the metaverse because the metaverse is made for them. And I just think it's going to be an even more dangerous area for them because, I mean, talk about unregulated. It's so new. So tell me what you're working on when it comes to the metaverse. Well, I mean, a few weeks ago, we actually released some research in in the New York Times on the metaverse. And when the metaverse was announced by Mark Zuckerberg, he said, I'm going to put safety and security, especially if children, at the very heart of the experience. And we wanted to test, well, is that true? And of course, metaverse is just virtual reality. And Facebook already has a virtual reality service. It's called Oculus. And you may have seen it advertised before Christmas. They were telling everyone to buy it for their kids. We actually spent 12 hours studying what Oculus VR chat is like, and our researchers sneakily recorded the footage. And what we found was every seven minutes, something happened there that was either hate, we saw kids harassing children sexually, we saw pornography, we saw someone literally turning their avatar into the Twin Towers and crashing a plane into it, we saw someone preaching white genocide, white supremacist mythology to kids, so every seven minutes. And I mean, our contention is, if, you th- if you're buying Oculus for your kids, you need to be aware that you have no way, you can't even look at their phone when it comes to VR because it's it happens in the moment there. We, we've got a big way to go on that because these platforms have not proven themselves fit and proper to run even text-based and image-based services. Why on earth are we giving them monopolies in virtual reality? So yeah, look, the technology keeps evolving and so does the nature of the fight. But luckily, my research team They are ahead of the curve on these issues, and they've been tracking it all the time. And I would think once you start to get laws in place, these are laws that will affect things that haven't been created yet. You know, five years from now, these laws will be implemented in whatever is discovered or invented. Well, I mean, the first country to have proper legislation on the books is the UK. It's got the Online Services Bill, which is actually having its second reading in March in the UK. And that bill... If they fail to clean up their platforms from harms that they know are being created that are things like really serious stuff, so whether it's racial hatred or it's misinformation that might kill people, if they fail to reflect their duty of care, they can be fined 10% of global revenues and executives can be put in jail. So the time of accountability for these platforms is coming. My job now in the UK is to make sure the politicians don't go back on what they've promised they're going to do. But, you know, we're past the stage where we're begging for legislation because legislation is coming. Yeah, good. Imran, I just sit in my cozy chair and ask people a lot of questions. And so at the end, I like to let my guest ask me a question about anything. And so now you're up. So I'm asking everyone this. What's the one thing you couldn't do last year that you're excited to do this year? (laughs) Uh, One thing I couldn't do last. I mean, I, I, let's see that I can, I actually, I will say I'm hoping this year to travel. 
Right. It is something I haven't done in a long time. I would like to not eat my own cooking. I would like to see some other faces that I haven't seen. I'd like to actually go and do a chat show where there's an audience and not just a few cameramen and a PA so that, that the laughter is real. But I think travel is the biggest thing. You know, let me know that there's a bigger world out there. Yes, definitely. I, I haven't been in a studio for uh, a year and a bit now. So, you know, being able to sort of get out and actually talk to someone, get into a real debate that isn't over a screen. But I actually didn't hug anyone that wasn't my wife last year. So for me, it was the hug. Wow. I secretly hugged friends and family. So, you know, I'm sure I can, I'll get arrested for that. But I did. I, I safely hugged people. Um, thank you so much for such amazing work, you know, which me is, it's like Sisyphus. And if you can actually get this rock over the hill, then, you know, you should get a Nobel Peace Prize. So thank you. Thank you. And anything I can do personally and my listeners can do to, to scaffold you, we would like to do. Just tell us how. Well, I mean, the first thing they can do is go and find us on Twitter at CCDHate or on Instagram at, at CounterHate. So at CCD hate on Twitter and at Kante on Instagram and that, you know, start amplifying our material, get it out to your friends. The greatest gift you can give someone you love is the gift of good information. True. Thank you. My pleasure. First of all, Imran is such an amazing speaker. I, I didn't even want to ask him questions. I just wanted to hear him talk. Um, you can go to counterhate.com and learn more about his not-for-profit NGO. And basically, I'm left with the incredible idea that we are in a much bigger war than I thought against digital technology. It's completely changed how we communicate, how we have relationships and knowledge, our politics. And if this is going to be the new way we exist, we need to figure out a way to make these platforms safe particularly for our children. We have to come together and stop all this misinformation and the different platforms of hate and start to find ways to govern it in a real and practical way. And I think that everybody has a hand in this and that everybody has to join together and set these rules. As always, thank you for listening to Go Ask Ali. Also, we've posted some links in our show notes if you'd like more information. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, and follow me on social media on Twitter at Allie Wentworth and on Instagram at The Real Allie Wentworth. Now, if you'd like to ask me a question or suggest a guest or a topic I can dig into, I'd love to hear from you. And there's a bunch of ways you can do it. You can call or text me at 323 364 6356, or you can email a voice memo right from your phone to goaskallypodcast at gmail.com. If you leave a question, you may hear it on Go Ask Allie. Go Ask Alley is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.